Turn with me over to Romans chapter 1. We're going to continue our series on living by faith and what it means to extend ourselves so that we can become more relevant in this world. The title of this message is How to Peak in God. Romans 1, verse 16 through 17. Paul's writing, and he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, But my righteous man shall live by faith. Lord, help us as we study. When Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, he hadn't been there. And he was doing everything within his power to try to communicate who he was and his philosophy of ministry. Let them know a little bit about his personality and, and what, 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 what the things were that were most important to him. And after the wonderful salutations he gives, the greetings about uh, hellos and can't wait to get to you, he says in verse 16, he starts with a punch. He says, I want you to know, when we talk about this gospel... There is nothing more important to me. I'm not ashamed of it. For it is the power of God for salvation. This was a man who was well, well acquainted with what it meant to need salvation. He calls himself in Timothy the chief of sinners. A man in need of help more than anybody else. He persecuted the church. Separated mom from child. Husband from wife. Confiscated property. And was even there for the execution of the first martyr in the church. He was the governing official at which everybody placed their cloaks. They had to lay them at the feet of somebody because you couldn't just legally get a mob and go out and kill somebody. And it says that Saul, that was his name then, was the man at whose feet they laid their cloaks, which represented permission to do what they needed to do. And they killed Stephen, stoned him to death. Paul says, I was a mess. And this gospel came down to save somebody like me, a persecutor of the thing for which God died, his church. I understand what, what it means to experience the power of God for salvation because I needed to be saved. So he says, I'm not ashamed of it, I'm proud of it. Of what are you proud? Of what are you most proud? If you have children, generally, when I walk in your home, I'll see them on the walls not just sitting on the couch. You're proud of your kids, so you got pictures of them all over the place, don't you? You're proud of your, your, your accomplishments, so you got degrees. And what do you do with those degrees? Usually you frame them real nice and put them on a wall, don't you? Uh, tell me, where in your life is the portrait of Jesus? When people come across the, the threshold of your life, can they find Jesus in a hurry? Or do they have to look around the crevices? Do they have to go through every quarter of your home to find out now what do they believe? Amen. Who's most important to them? This evidence is the fact that if they can't find Jesus in a hurry, there's some shame you have about making sure that he's prominent. Paul said, I'm not ashamed because I realize what this God did for me, how he loved me. And something about the sacrifice that Father God gave by sending his son for your benefit ought to drive you every day and make you want to make sure that Jesus is front and center. You remember when they used to have, we, we used to have wallets that had little plastic 
uh, picture things in them. You know, translucent things where you put the pictures in, keep them safe, and put them where you want. And then you could open it up, and there's a place where you could just share everything, show all your kids. And, and now it's on the phone, so those things don't, don't mean anything anymore. But, but do you ever have an opportunity to show Jesus to folk? We need to be unashamed of this gospel. Because it's not only the power of God for you, but it is the power of God for salvation for everybody. Everybody on the planet needs to know about this message. And it's almost, hear me, I'm going to be strong and unqualifyingly so. It's almost criminal for you to take the cure for life and hold it to yourself. I beg you, be like Paul. Say, I'm not ashamed of this. And he says... For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. People can't see the best life they ought to live unless somebody is going from one level of faith to another. The righteousness of God is best revealed by somebody who has gotten saved by faith and is now living by faith daily. That way people can see, oh, that's the way life is supposed to be lived. I've entitled this sermon, How to Peak in God, because it's an acrostic. When I get to Roman numeral two, you'll see four points. Personal holiness, P. Effective stewardship, E. Advanced, advancing ministry, A. And kid, mindful, K. We need to be people that are peaking in God with respect to what it means to have faith increase. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As your faith begins to grow, so people begin to see what right action looks like. And remember, faith doesn't have much to do with how you think. It doesn't have much to do with how you feel on the inside. Faith is best evidenced by what you do. James says it like this. You say you believe, and that's all good. But I will show you my faith by what I do. People evidence that God is real by what we do more than what we say. And if you do not do, shut up. Just stop talking. Don't go around proclaiming the name of Jesus if your life is contrary to everything you know to be true. People like that are the reason folk don't come into church and call us hypocrites. Just stop it. Stop it. Now, the best course of action is not to stop talking. The best course of action is to start living. Begin to exemplify the life that you think is most right. And don't compartmentalize your life into one way of thinking and one way of doing. Let victory be your portion and let the Holy Spirit begin to inspire you to live the highest quality life you can find in Scripture. God wants us to have a faith that is reflected in how we live. And as we go in God, our faith needs to increase from one level to another. And as we do so, so is the righteousness of God revealed to other people whereby they say, that's how you do marriage. That's how you do child raising. That's how you do finances. That's how you treat employees. That's how you treat a supervisor. I understand. I get it now. But it only comes as a result of people seeing how God says is the best way to act from people who are growing. Now, if you found yourself as a believer and you made a decision when you were seven and now you're 35 and you haven't increased at all, 
You haven't changed at all. You think that your faith is primarily just to get you to glory? I'm sorry, you came to the right and wrong place today. Right in that you're going to get help, wrong in that I'm going to step all over your toes. I love you though. Your faith is not just that which is to get you to heaven. It's not that which is just to secure you to glory. Your faith is supposed to be that which has an effect in how you live every day of your life. The kind of faith I'm talking about is not just relegated to the ministry. Everybody expects it of a minister. But this is 101 Christianity. All of us need to live right every day. Every day. And try to figure out how can I live more right today than I did yesterday. Because when I do so, when my faith is greater increasing to the level in which I'm trying to exemplify who God is more, people see it more. Paul said it like this. When I die, y'all live. He said, I die daily. But don't be concerned, he said to the Corinthians, about my life. Because I realize that my dying is helping you live. What does that mean? How can somebody's death, other than Christ, help anybody live? It's the fact that when we pick up our cross daily and we die, something happens on the inside whereby Christ living in us helps other people understand the right way to live better and better. More truth came out of Paul as a result of him dying daily. More understanding. And remember, this man who's writing about the righteousness of God being revealed from one level of faith to another is a guy that God entrusted to write two-thirds of the New Testament. Why do you think that is? Because he said this in Philippians. I want you to know I haven't arrived yet. It's not that I become mature or perfect. I'm not there. He said this one thing I do. I press forward. I strive. That I might lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Every day. Brett's paraphrase. Every day I try to be a little bit better than I was yesterday. I get a fresh 24 and all I want to do is please God more today than I did yesterday. I want to become a better father, a better husband, a better wife, a better mother, a better employee, a better friend, better everything. I'm going to allow my faith that I had yesterday to be the springboard that brings me to another level of faith today. And as I do that, the life of Jesus begins to be manifest in me so that people benefit from it and they begin to live better. Paul says, when I die, y'all live. Righteousness is revealed. And the world needs to know what's right. They need to know the best course of action. And we're going, the world is going the wrong way because they rarely choose well. Two things I want to talk about today with respect to righteousness and living by faith. One is a righteousness that, that all, of us, all of us get imparted, just given. When you... When you were able to call yourself a Christian, you were able to do so because God gave you the gift of righteousness. Gave it to you. It says in Romans 4 that righteousness was given to Abraham not as a result of works, but as a result of faith. That he simply believed and God said, I credit your belief as righteousness. That's amplified more as we go through and understand what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And that in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says that, that Jesus became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became sin on our behalf. 
Now, why was that necessary? Because there was nothing we could do to fix all the bad we had done. There's no way we can try to make up for everything we've done wrong by doing more stuff right. God doesn't put sin and righteousness on the scales of eternity and and have it weigh out. Oh, you did more right in your life than you did wrong, so you get to come into glory. It doesn't work like that. If you commit one crime against God, one sin, you are worthy of death. I don't care how much you do right for the rest of your life. You have to pay the price for the sin you committed. The penalty must be satisfied. God just can't take all of his justice and righteousness and sweep it under the carpet because he kind of likes you. Oh, you're so sweet. I'm just going to let it all go, baby. Come on in. You're just human anyway. It doesn't work like that. He is righteous and holy, and his justice must be satisfied. Let that sink in a little bit. And now that it has, realize this. God loved you so much, he didn't want you to die. He said, I don't want you to have to suffer the penalty for your wrong action. So I'm going to make a greater sacrifice. Not only did I create you, not only do I endure with you, not only do I continue to forgive you, I'm going to send my son for your benefit so that you don't have to suffer for eternity that which you've done wrong. So he sent his son, and Jesus lived a perfect life, did nothing wrong, the only one to live a perfect life. In doing so, when they tried to kill him, death could not hold him because the wages of sin is death. And because he had committed no sin, he could not let death hold him. So he was freed from the bondage, the shackles of death, and he rose forevermore, never to die again. To which Paul says, when he died, he died your death. He became sin on your behalf. The penalty you needed to suffer, he took. You don't have to suffer it anymore. So your debt has been paid. Say amen. Amen. Been paid. Done. Over. Now, when you, as a Christian, having expressed faith in Christ, not only do you get the privilege of being pardoned for all the stuff you've done wrong, but now he says, I'm going to give you an added benefit. It would be enough if he just forgave me. That'd be enough just to get out of jail free. That'd be sweet. But he didn't just give me a get out of jail free car. He said, I'm going to look at you as if you're righteous. You no longer are just innocent. I'm going to make you righteous as if you had lived life just like Jesus did. That's how Paul gets the idea where he says, he became sin on your behalf that you might become God's righteousness. Now, the reason that was necessary was that the only people who can get into glory are those who are perfectly right. He can't allow sin in. Just can't. Sin can't pass the pearly gates, if you will. I don't know that there are any, but they can't pass them. And so God says, the only way I can let you in is if you are perfect. But nobody can be perfect. We've already blown it. So he said, I'm going to allow your imperfection to be found in Christ and die with him on the cross. And then he is going to transfer you his righteous life. So that when I see you walking through those pearly gates, I see Jesus. That's a gift. You cannot earn it. You do not deserve it. It is a gift. And everybody say, thank you, Jesus. It's a wonderful thing. Only about a third of y'all said it, but I'm going to let you go. That righteousness is something that God gives. There's another kind of righteousness which should follow that righteousness, and it's a righteousness that comes from doing the right thing. 
It's not that it gets you entrance to God in any way. It's not that it grants you the privilege of going through to glory or that it brings you any more favor with him because somehow he thinks now, wow, you're so good. It's just you do it because you love him. You want to make him happy with your life. Right doing. Not the righteousness that's imparted, but right doing. The kind of life that should follow a life that has been made right. The kind of life that doesn't allow anybody to call you a hypocrite. The kind of life that best evidences the right way to live in the earth. He's doing it. She's doing it. Wow, that's amazing. Look at the fruit. Look at the results of what they, 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 they do. It's a, I don't have any of that. How do they have? How does that work with them? And people begin to inquire because they need help in their own lives. They don't know the right way. But you, because you love God, are not just relying on your faith that got you saved. You are now growing in faith. You're allowing your faith to go from one level to another so that more righteousness is revealed. Are, are you following me? And that faith is best reflected in how you obey. James said it this way. I know you believe. I got that. But I'm going to show you what I believe by what I do, as I said before. Our faith needs to be reflected in our deeds. So we're going to look at four things. One, our personal holiness. Two, the kind of, of, of real effective stewardship. Three, advancing ministry. And four, kid mindful, being kid mindful. Personal holiness. Purity is, is a lost value in our society. Nobody really, really thinks it's important to be pure. But holiness is all about what's on the inside and what you do on the outside. Holiness is not just moral conduct. It's also about, are, are you tending the garden of your soul? Are you making sure the weeds are pulled in your own heart? What do you like when nobody else is watching? Where do you go on the internet when you're by yourself? What do you watch on TV? What's your thought life like? When that coworker said that to you today and you did not have a very quick one-liner back, and now all the way home on your commute you're thinking about that person? You go home, do what you got to do, make the food, play with the kids, tell them stories, put them to bed, and now you're lying in bed thinking, when I see them tomorrow... I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. What's your thought life like? See, this is purity and holiness. Because when God thinks about you the last time you slapped him, the last time you disobeyed him, the last time you were an affront to him because he said do this and you said no, you know what he thinks about you? He thinks, how can I run to give forgiveness to this one? What can I do? to bring redemption to their life. They so need it. When Adam and Eve blew it in the garden, God did not come say, I saw you. I saw you, I saw you, I saw you. Yeah, I know, I watched you eat that apple. Oh, you in trouble now. I've been waiting for this moment. Adam, where are you? Well, we, we were afraid because we blew it. Oh, really? Come here, let me help you. God came down knowing they had done what they had done to forgive them. You need to run, and, and rather than the meditation of your heart, met, thinking about how you can get that person back with the words of your mouth, the meditation of your heart, Lord, forgive them. Don't, they treated me poorly today, but I want you to know I forgive them, and I don't want you to hold it against them. 
See, see that, that, that's another level of forgiveness. Because most of y'all forgiveness just stops at, Lord, I forgive him. But you can get him if you want to, God. That's where you stop right there. <laughs> Vengeance is yours, you know. That's what you said. It's yours. I give them to you, oh God, whatever you want to do. But I forgive them. I forgive them. Aren't you glad Jesus on the cross when he had an opportunity to blast everybody? Blast everybody. Said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He didn't even mention, I forgive you. That was already a given. He went straight to daddy and said, don't get them. You meditate like that. We're talking about that kind of purity. And we cannot, dear people, we cannot allow the anointing for duty, the grace to be able to perform, to be a substitute for our character. We can't let the deficiencies in our own soul be hidden by our work ethic. Because let me, let me tell you, when you get good at what you do, when you're competent and people want to hear what you got to say or they flock around your gift because you can sing or you can serve and you got great ideas and you can make stuff happen, you are a rainmaker, boy, it, it, it really strokes your heart. You start feeling it. Ooh, I'm good. God's approving me. Everything's great. He's blessing my life. You start flowing and going. Ain't nothing like it. And all of a sudden, because you feel the approval of God in what you're doing, you forget that you've got a relationship with him that is dependent more on how you relate to him than anybody else. To which Peter says, you used to live in lust. That was your former life. But the one who called you, he said, I want you to make sure, because I am holy, that you live just like me. So in all of your conduct, in 1 Peter, in all of your conduct, be holy, just as I am holy. God wants holiness to come on the inside, not just outward, but on the inside. Our thought life, our morality, our dealing with issues of lust down on the inside of us. God, I will not let this control my thoughts, and I will not let it control my actions. I choose to please you because I want to make you happy, and I want to be like you. I want to be holy. To do this, you've got to go from whatever level of faith you're at right now to another. And when you do that, you begin to evidence the right way to live. When we begin to ignore the deficiencies in our character and concentrate more on performance and ministry, we do so to our own demise because the enemy is very patient. He can wait. Oh, please ignore that, he says. Yes, don't make that a big deal. Continue to build big ministries. Write books. Go on TV, please. I'll open up the doors for you. And he waits for that one opportunity. One. And you can fill in the blank with anybody you know who's fallen. It only takes one. Deficiency in character. And whenever I see somebody blowing it, I get on my knees and I say, God, not me. Not just because of the embarrassment that comes from the disgrace publicly, but because I don't want to do anything that would show people more the wrong way to live. Because God's righteousness isn't revealed when we go from one level of faith backwards. God help. I do not want 
to destroy with my lack of character that which I built with my gift. And so I do everything I possibly can to make sure that the ministry that I perform has a platform of character rather than just trying to perform on a regular basis so I feel the anointing and you get graced. Personal holiness from one level of faith to another. Secondly, effective stewardship. We need to be people that are always trying to figure out how in the world can we take the resources God has given us and, and, and parlay them, leverage them to something else. One of the saddest scriptures in all the Bible is when the Israelites were coming into the promised land, Deuteronomy chapter 8, and God says, when you get there, it's going to be sweet. I mean, stuff's just going to flow for you. You're going to be blessed. Stuff's going to come out of the ground much more productively for you than for anybody else. It's going to be great. But when your vats are overflowing with oil and wine, and when your, your barns are filled with grain, and you, can't, you don't have any place else to store the rest of the harvest, please do this. Don't forget me. Saddest scripture in all of the Bible. Don't forget me. And remember that it is I who has given you the power to make wealth for one reason. That you might, verse 18, establish my covenant in the earth. God has given you resources so that he can progress his covenant in the planet. Now, there's nothing wrong with you enjoying it. Go out, buy a boat if you want to. Be miserable. I don't know anybody who's got a boat that ain't trying to sell it. They are more work than they are worth almost. It takes a lot to keep up a boat. If you want to keep it up, buy one. Enjoy it. Hear me. God has given you primarily the resources you've been given to advance his covenant, not just to enjoy it for yourself. And if we begin to only enjoy stuff and look at our bank accounts and recognize our material wealth and how it's increased... It's important that we put it in perspective and say, Lord, you did this, not me. And the, the, the part of the scripture that I left out intentionally to this point is, lest you say it was by my own hand that I secured these resources. Don't forget me. It's important that you become an effective steward over everything that's, that God has given so you can advance the kingdom in your family. Advance the covenant in your community, in your workplace, in your church. That is the reason you've been given stuff. Thirdly, advancing ministry, A. We need to make sure that we are moving from one level of faith to another so that the righteousness of God can be revealed in our ministries. You need to begin service. Matthew 25 talks about Jesus said, when you do whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. The disciples didn't get it because Jesus prefaced that comment by saying, you, 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 you were in prison and you came to visit me and, and you, you were, you, I, was, I was naked and you clothed me and I was hungry and you fed me. And they said, when were you any of that? He said, when you did it to my brethren, you did it to me. We need to figure out how our compassion can continually extend to people without reservation about whether we will have enough for ourselves. Why? Because we believe a God who provides for us. Now, I'm not talking about lack stewardship. Well, you're giving away your house payment in order to provide for somebody else, and now you're going to be evicted. All that is is robbing Peter to pay Paul. I'm talking about a good stewardship that allows you to understand what it means to provide for your own while you care for the needs of others. And it might be that you have to sacrifice a meal out at, at, at Sweetwater. Okay. Okay. You might not be able to get that upgrade in a car you want for a year because you go give to the building program. Do you know God can make your car last? 
Sacrifices can be made because you want advancing ministry in your life. And you need to move from one level of faith to another in order for people to benefit and see what righteousness looks like. Lastly, we need to be kid mindful. Okay. We need to be people who are second generation oriented. God, the whole Bible is about generations. It's not just about one. It's about many. And the Lord wants us to always be thinking about how does this translate to the kids? What are you giving, parents, your children? Those of you who do not have kids, how are you ministering to the next generation? Are you serving in a youth ministry? Are you serving in a kids ministry? Are you serving on the campuses? The area of youth for us is the largest employment area in our church. We have anywhere from six to eight people that we, that we employ because we care about the next generation. And I'm doing everything I can to work myself out of a job. There's no protectiveness here. I'm not territorial. I'm trying to figure out how can I get a young man, a young woman to come and take my position. I want them to knock it out of the park, trying to give it away. So we're training young people. What are you doing in your own homes? What are you leaving for your kids, parents? Beyond the the, the money that you're going to give them when you die, please do that. (laughs) Don't leave them with debt. Don't do that. Don't do that. Leave them with something. But beyond that, because they're going to spend that. What are you giving them? You need to transfer the covenant. Each one of our children get a ring when they graduate. Not one of those uh, high school things, you know, brass things. But they, they get a real nice ring. And around it, they have their initials in the middle. And around it, there are four words. Integrity, courage, loyalty, and kindness. Those are the four words, if you were to boil down my life, upon which I make every decision. If you forget everything I said, when I'm gone, you can't get my advice anymore. Just look at your right hand. Look at your right hand. You'll have the principles of the covenant that will help you make great decisions all the time. What do you leave in the next generation? We need to go from one level of faith to another in understanding what it means to grow in our care for the next generation. Malachi says it this way. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord, I'm going to send the prophet Elijah before you, Malachi chapter 4, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to children and the hearts of children to their fathers. There is no personal pronoun when it comes to the hearts of fathers being turned to children. There is a personal pronoun when it says the hearts of children to their fathers. It's natural for a child to go back to daddy and want to reconcile. But when it talks about the heart of children, heart of fathers to children, no personal pronoun, meaning God's not saying turning the hearts of children to, turning the hearts of fathers to their children. He's saying turn, turning the hearts of fathers to children in general. The way we begin to stop the curse, the way we begin to see sin and sin stopped and righteousness prevail is that all of us enlarge the borders of our soul increase the capacity of our own heart to care for more of the second generation than just lives in our house. I beg you, figure out how to do that. Personal holiness, effective stewardship, advancing ministry, being kid mindful. You do that, you will grow from one level of faith to another and see righteousness more revealed to the community than ever before through your life. Let's pray.